It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Monday, July 27, 2020. On today's episode, we have author Marjorie Salona, who will be presenting her novel, How a Woman Becomes a Lake. We also have author Allison Waring, who will be presenting her book, Moments of Glad Grace. On this day in history, July 27, 1921, Frederick Banting and Charles Best isolate insulin at the University of Toronto. Insulin was the life-saving substance that allowed diabetics to live a normal life. It's hard to overestimate how important a discovery Best and Banting made, how many lives were saved, particularly the lives of children, and how desperate the situation was for these children before insulin. Before turning it over to the two authors, here's an excerpt from the amazing podcast, The Memory Palace, that makes clear how awful diabetes was before Banting and Best made their discovery. Elizabeth Hughes suffered horribly for three years, make no mistake. But because she lived, because she endured, she was alive when a new treatment was developed. A Canadian doctor removed part of the pancreas of a brown and white collie and made it diabetic. And there the poor thing was, lying near death on the table, when the doctor injected her with insulin, a pancreatic hormone, and the dog started wagging her tail and jumped off the table. And Dr. Allen heard about this and made his way to Canada to get the medicine and came back to his hospital and to his starving patients and made them well. Elizabeth was five feet tall and weighed 45 pounds when she started her insulin treatment. She was three days shy of her 15th birthday. She could barely walk. That was August 1922. That November, she weighed 105 pounds and she was back at home. She could eat, she could run, she could play. And this wasn't a cure, it was a treatment. It wasn't the happy ending, it was the starting line. And here we should slow down and think of the relief of her parents, of Dr. Allen, of all the nurses and orderlies, the groundskeepers, everyone at the clinic, who had been watching children waste away and die every day. And now they got to watch resurrections. That was This Day in History. Here is author Marjorie Salona. Hi. My name is Marjorie Salona, and I'm the author of How a Woman Becomes a Lake. I thought I would just tell you a little bit about the book and why I wrote it, and then I will read for a little while. So on New Year's Day in 1986, a woman goes missing during a blizzard in a small Pacific Northwest town. A police officer discovers that a father and his two sons were at the same place as the woman when she went missing. And an investigation ensues, one that ends up affecting the officer's life as much as the other characters. The book also explores what happens to the consciousness of the woman as she dies, but also what happens to the consciousness of the little boys as they integrate the trauma of what happened that day at the lake into their beings. Told in the third person from seven perspectives, including the voice of the dead woman, the novel explores questions of human agency and autonomy, cause and effect, and human responsibility. What happens to consciousness when we die? In a more concrete sense, 
It's about what happens when children are failed by the people who are supposed to protect them. The thing I love most is writing children. I've always gravitated to child narrators. I think I'm maybe moving away a little from it finally, but certainly most of my writing career so far has focused on children. Writing about brothers came out of something a professor said to me once about a story I'd written a long time ago. He told me I would never be able to write convincingly about fathers and sons, that there were some things that women could just never understand. And I just adamantly disagreed then and still do. But really the thing I wanted to investigate was the long shadow that childhood trauma casts over adulthood and how childhood trauma affects people in different ways. And I wanted to write about violence and toxic masculinity. It seemed like two young boys were the best vehicle to access this, to really talk about the pressure that boys are under. I wanted to question toxic masculinity, but from a boy's perspective, and also investigate where and how it forms. I mean, we're perfect as babies, and then something happens. That something, whatever it is, is what I wanted to investigate. The moment that innocence is lost, the first moment of violence, when a child first becomes violent, that seemed like rich, difficult fodder to explore. I was really interested in portraying complicated figures, not ready-made cliches or stock characters, in order to really get at the more interesting roots of toxic masculinity and how damaging it is not only to women and children, but also to men. I was thinking of this Marilyn Robinson quote as I wrote, there is a deeper self that our daylight self doesn't acknowledge. I'm going to read a little bit from chapter two, only because I like chapter two more than chapter one, and I believe you can read chapter one for free online. <laughs> so here we go. Chapter two, and this is told from the perspective of Jesse, who's 10 years old. The paper boats were difficult to make, and Jesse's hands were clumsy from the cold. It was New Year's Day, and his father had brought him and his brother to Squire Point. They were supposed to write their wishes for the new year on the paper boats, then set them on the surface of the frozen lake and wait for spring. When the ice melted, their father said, their wishes would come true. Jesse was ten, and Dimitri, six. They sat in the back seat of their father's car with the heat on high, each with a sheet of pale blue paper and a black felt pen. Theirs was the only car in the parking lot. Their father told them that most people preferred to go to malls. They had gone to the mall once, but the crying babies had upset their father and he had been short with his sons, annoyed. What was there to do with your children when you didn't live with them anymore? And so they drove around. On these long drives, they listened to the marine forecast. Their father had a transistor radio that bleated small craft advisories, swells, wind waves, and knots. It was always on, though their father hadn't gone sailing in years. Something he had done in a previous life. That was how he put it. When he still lived in San Garcia, a two days drive away. Their father had driven them out to Squire Point slowly, the roads unplowed. 
The car hit a pothole and their father swore. The Pineapple Express, their father said. And Jesse thought he was talking nonsense again. Their father talked of spiritual things sometimes. The universe and reincarnation, ghosts, spirits, telepathy. And he began to do so now. Squire Point was a magical place, their father said. A sacred place. It wasn't all crazy talk, like their mother, Evelina, said. Jesse felt that Squire Point was indeed sacred. He felt it in his bones. He knew Dimitri would feel it soon, too. You had to be old enough to feel things like that. They pulled onto the highway, and their father told the boys about his old days in San Garcia, about his new girlfriend, and about his ex-girlfriends, an impressive list. He farted. He farted again and again. He sang, and they made up songs. He hollered at a woman in a bus shelter, called her Chicky Poo. He lit a cigarette but did not roll the window down. He didn't wear a seatbelt, though the boys were buckled in tight. It seemed to Jesse that it was a very long drive out to Squire Point, but time slowed when he was with his father, whether because he savored the few afternoons they spent together or dreaded them, he couldn't tell. Their father's name was Leo, short for Galileo, though hardly anyone knew that. He was muscular, though too thin, with a curved neck like a heron's and a big nose. Jesse knew he looked like his father, olive skin, so dark in summer it was almost black, the same dark hair, that same nose. Remarkable was the word people used. It's remarkable how much you look like your father, they said. At first glance, his father was a handsome man. The closer Jesse looked at his father, though, the less handsome he became. His eyes darkened when he drank, glassy and black, sunken into his face. He had been born with a clubfoot and it had been corrected with surgery, but an ugly scar ran across his ankle that to Jesse looked like the face of a monster. His left foot and leg were smaller than his right, another thing hardly anyone knew. Who would notice such a thing? Most people didn't notice much. Even at ten, Jesse knew that to be true. But Jesse noticed everything. His father kept a little bottle of tequila in the glove compartment and a slice of lemon in a plastic bag, smoked hand-rolled cigarettes from butts he'd picked off the ground. Their mother had kicked him out six months ago. Before he left, they all lived in an old house with a giant monkey puzzle tree in the front yard. Now the boys lived with their mother in a small white beach house, and their father lived in a one-room apartment in what was said to be the seedy part of town. He slept on a foam mattress with a travel pillow and a navy blue sleeping bag, an extra blanket wadded in the closet for the boys. Nothing on the walls, a suitcase in the corner, no washer or dryer, a red toothbrush beside the kitchen sink. Nothing in the fridge except a half-empty bottle of wine. Jesse sensed that other people didn't live this way. His father's clean-shaven face, the medicinal smell of his aftershave, the specks of blood on his chin stopped up with toilet paper, the sight of him, the sound of his voice, made Jesse feel as if his whole body might shatter. Every time he'd seen his father these past six months, once a week was their current arrangement, 
his mother asked whether he'd had a nice time. He understood that he had to say yes. He knew on some primal level that it was better to have a bit of a father than no father at all. Besides, his father was smiling and telling Dimitri a joke about a football-playing centipede. He pulled into the first parking lot at Squire Point, reached into his jacket, downed a can of beer in three gulps, then threw the empty can out the window and into the snow. So the coach says to the centipede, his father said, where were you during the first half? Jesse watched his father glance at Dimitri, pause, pause some more. Then, when the silence had become almost unbearable, his father erupted, and the centipede says, I was putting on my shoes. He seemed to be in a good mood. He told his sons that after they made the paper boats, he would let them shoot his rifle. They were not to tell their mother this, though they could, they should, tell her about the paper boats. You hear me, he said, and Jesse nodded, remembering not to act too excited. Their father was easily irritated, and the day could darken. That was the problem with his father, his mother had told him. He was neither good nor bad, but rather half of one and half of the other. Outside the fogged-up windows of the car, the spindly birch trees encased in ice looked as though they were made of glass. Jesse wrote his wish on one side of the paper, turned it over, folded it, made a crease, and brought the edges together to form a V. The next part was difficult, and his father spoke in a low, slow voice, holding up his piece of paper to demonstrate how, with the right folds, it could become a little hat that could then be flattened into a diamond. Dimitri looked bewildered, and Jesse's fingers shook, but soon the diamonds became little triangles, and then even smaller hats, and when the boys pinched the edges of their pieces of paper and pulled them apart, two small blue boats emerged in their hands. Put a penny in the bottom to weigh it down, their father said, and passed each of his sons a coin. Helps the wishes come true. Last weekend, Jesse had met his father's new girlfriend. She was shorter than his mother, as thin and muscular as a dancer. Her name was Holly, and she had wild blonde hair and wore no makeup. She answered the door in a long white gauzy dress, black leggings, and beat-up running shoes without socks. On the drive over, his father told the boys that she ran a harbor-front art gallery with a studio in the back where she slept and an easel for her own work. Jessie could tell she was pretty, but like his father, she seemed off. For instance, her studio had no bathroom or kitchen, she kept a bucket in the closet with a roll of toilet paper beside it, and in the same closet she stored cereal, peanut butter, soup cans, a hot plate, and a camping stove. When they had first arrived, their father presented her with, as he put it, a windfall, three half-used rolls of toilet paper, a tube of toothpaste, a large bag of beef jerky, and a bottle of multivitamins. Then, of course, out came the cans of beer. She was an artist, sold her greeting cards and calendars to tourists. His father said the word artist with some reverence. Jesse thought the greeting cards were dumb. Watercolor paintings of flowers and fishing boats, so boring. Why not take a picture? 
Still, his father seemed lighter in her presence, and Jesse felt a tinge of guilt, for he realized that he too was having a good time. Holly told him and Dimitri to look up, and when they did, they saw the ceiling was covered in hundreds of origami birds. She put on some kind of tribal music and danced with her arms over her head. Jessie saw that she did not shave her underarms. It was thrilling to see the wild tufts of dark hair, as thick as his father's, sprouting from those bone-thin, white arms. "'Let me draw your boy,' she said. She stood behind a butcher block table and sketched Jessie, then handed him a piece of paper with a charcoal portrait of his face. He could see his father beaming at this gesture, this bond between them. It was flattering to be drawn, and Jessie blushed. When he got home, he hid the drawing under his bed where his mother would never think of looking. But she must have seen the piece of heavy construction paper while she was vacuuming. She presented him with it the next day, a charcoal rendition of his big eyes and sunken cheeks, his look of alarm, his bangs parted evenly down the center of his forehead. He shouldn't make you spend time with his girlfriends, she said. Her tone was sharp, like when Dimitri was first born, and she would get so frustrated that she would stop the car, reach over Jesse's body, unbuckle his seatbelt, push open the car door, push him out. After his mother went into her bedroom for the night, Jesse climbed into Dimitri's bed and fell asleep with his hand on his brother's back. He watched his brother's little sleeping body breathe in and out beside him. He had torn the drawing into pieces to show his mother that it meant nothing. It was Jesse's idea to run back onto the lake and steal a look at his father's wish. His father had left his cigarettes in the car and was stomping away from the boys, calling over his shoulder at them to stay on the trail. Jesse wondered what he wanted his father's paper boat to say. I want to come back. I miss Jesse. I miss my family. Once his father was out of sight, he grabbed Dimitri by the hand, told him to be quiet, and the two of them sprinted to the edge of the lake, then inched out carefully, testing each step to make sure the ice could support their weight. The lake was covered in a fine layer of snow, and they held each other's hands tight. Jesse figured he had about five minutes before his father returned. He thought that a frozen lake would look something like a mirror, and that when he looked down, he would see his reflection. But the ice beneath, beneath his feet was covered in snow, and there was nothing to see within it. Dimitri saw the bear tracks first and pointed at the imprint. They were only a few feet out on the lake, and the tracks were hard to make out, could even be a big dog's. The bear had come out about ten feet onto the lake, then circled back. Jesse told Dimitri not to worry, for already his brother's face was breaking into a cry, and if his father returned and found his youngest son upset, Jesse knew he would be punished. It didn't matter why or what had happened. His father got angry. He got so angry, Jesse thought he was going to kill them, smash every glass in the house and bust out every window with his fist and kick over the chairs and pound the table with a hammer until it crashed into a million pieces on the floor. He'd be looking at the coffee pot, and the next minute it was being whipped across the room, not for any reason, even when everything else was right. 
Bills paid, waffles on the table, the radio on. The night their mother kicked him out, he got so angry, he ripped out a handful of her hair. Jesse's hands began to shake from the memory, and he tried to figure out how long it had been since his father had left to get his cigarettes. Two? Three minutes? Not long. But for how long had he looked at the bear tracks? Jesse pinched Dimitri's arm and told him to shut up. Shut up, you wimp! And pushed his brother ahead of him. Get going, he said. Dad'll be back soon. Hurry up, let's go! A few puddles had formed in the snow ahead of them, but Jesse continued, his hand gripping the back of his brother's coat for stability. Neither boy was dressed right. The wind ran through Jesse's jacket, and he felt the ice through the soles of his rubber boots. He wished he had on another pair of socks. He wished that he were home with his mother, that he was anywhere but here, on this frozen lake, miles from his house, with a damned bear and his crying brother, and the long day ahead of him in the cold with his father. He was ashamed that he hadn't been able to think of something better to write on his paper boat. He should have wished for his family to be together again, for his father to be sweet like he was before Dimitri was born. Instead, he'd been so nervous to finish his boat before his father got impatient that he scribbled, I want a dog, even though there was no point in wishing for something like that. He would either get a dog or he wouldn't, and luck had nothing to do with it. What did you wish for, Dimitri? He asked, but his brother didn't answer. He didn't have to. Jesse knew that Dimitri wanted only for his father to come home. Dimitri the favorite, Dimitri the good, Dimitri with the wavy hair of his mother, Dimitri with the innocent face full of freckles. The boys walked along the ice until they saw the blue paper boats ahead of them, sodden, half-submerged in an inch of snow. One had begun to unravel and lay on its side. The thaw would not carry them to the reservoir. They would be buried in the snow, destroyed, forgotten. Jesse felt a horrible ache in his chest. Dimitri stood shivering, his head down and tears in his eyes, while Jesse knelt and unfolded the sturdiest-looking boat, removed the penny and set it on the ice. His father wrote in uneven capital letters, much of it already wet and illegible. It was surprisingly long, almost a full page. He must have written it before he picked them up. I want to have a real, sincere talk with Evelina and tell her I'm getting remarried. The ice shifted underneath his feet, and Jesse snapped his head up, grabbed Dimitri so he wouldn't fall. Their father should not have left them out here, not even for five minutes. Don't make me angry, Jesse muttered. It was something his father said, and he found himself saying the same words. Don't make me angry. You don't want to make me angry. He felt the burn of rage spreading through his chest and into his throat and behind his eyes. It was time, Jesse thought, to teach his father a lesson. Thank you for listening, and I hope you're doing all right. I recorded this from my house in Eugene, Oregon, where I've lived since 2015. And I'm thinking of you in Montreal, far away from where I am. I lived in Montreal in from the year 2000 to 2001, just a little over a year. And I loved it. I've only been back once since in 2011. 
In any case, I'm wishing you well. It's a hard time right now. Take care of yourself, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Hi, my name's Allison Waring, and I'm the author of Moments of Glad Grace, which is a memoir about a trip I took to Ireland with my dad. Now, he was about to turn 80 and uh, had just been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and so I really felt that this was a precious opportunity that I didn't want to pass up when he invited me to join him. Uh, Now, he was going to Ireland to do some genealogical research, and I should admit, I had absolutely no interest in genealogy. But as I say, it felt like a really special opportunity to spend time together. And I decided, well, why not? Um, I can put up with a little bit of uh, genealogical research in libraries for um, a week in order to spend time with him. And so we set off together and it became a bit of a comedy of errors because I was um, ostensibly his research assistant, but very quickly um, I realized, well, when you're not interested in the research you're doing, you tend not to be very good at it. Um, and so I began chatting people up in the elevators and um, talking to the librarians. And, and I realized that I was actually much more interested just in stories, no? just the stories of Ireland, um, as opposed to the hard, cold facts of whose birth certificate was where and, you know, whether or not we could find direct descendants on a family tree and so on. Um, But fortunately, um, my father and I have a really wonderful relationship and we were able to laugh at each other and the very different ways that we were going about um, spending this time together and learning about our time. And we made a few interesting discoveries uh, that changed a bit the way that I saw genealogy and family history. And, um, and more than I think, more than anything, it really was the trip that I was hoping it would be and that it was a beautiful connection between the two of us that developed over the course of the days that we spent together um, And even though we didn't really find anything that he was looking for, we found each other, which was maybe even more important. Okay, so I'll read to you from the opening chapter. Now, I should explain the title, Moments of Glad Grace, comes from a poem by Yeats, which I will read. It's in the first pages of the book. When you are old and gray and full of sleep, and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and of their shadows deep. How many loved your moments of glad grace and loved your beauty with love false or true. But one man loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face. W.B. Yeats. The book is divided into seven days, and so each chapter is just the, the name of the day. So the first chapter is Saturday. Dublin Airport. The customs officer has the face of a merry alcoholic who also enjoys his pie. His friendly eyes flutter when I tell him the purpose of my trip, to help my father with some gynecological research. 
But he doesn't ask any further questions, just stamps my passport and says, Welcome to Ireland, love. Which feels like a moment of sanity in an otherwise crazed world. I've come here to help my father with some genealogical research. He's quite serious about it and has been at it for years, but a few months ago he mentioned a desire to revisit Dublin's libraries and archives, adding that he would prefer to do it with the help of a research assistant. Count me in, I'd said immediately, though we both know I fall asleep at the mere mention of genealogy, a word I'm forever confusing with gynecology, particularly when saying it aloud. Still, we're here, and a bit of boredom in the archive seems a small price to pay for the chance to spend ten days in Dublin with my dad. He'll be eighty in a few months, he'd say he's seventy-nine and a half, and he's so fit and active I have wondered if I'll be the one scrambling to keep up. But he also has incipient Parkinson's, a disease that has begun to possess and hammer him, and I jumped at a chance for time together now. My father does not appear in the collage of tired faces watching a slow parade of suitcases file past. We weren't sitting together on the plane, having bought our tickets separately, and I didn't see him in any of the lines at customs. I park myself in a visible spot and pass the time by trying to conjure a border experience which includes the phrase, Welcome to the United States, love. But no matter how many times I attempt to lift that small kite of words into being, I am unable to keep it aloft. When most of the bags are claimed from the belt and there is still no sign of him, I notice that when a parent is about to turn 80, a child's reflex changes from, where the hell's he gone, to, what if something's happened? I walk and peer and swivel and conclude that he must have headed out of the arrivals area without me. And indeed, on the other side of the exit's automatic doors, I spot him, looking bored. The moment I wave, however, he becomes animated, fluttering his hands to his chest and panting in theatrical, exaggerated relief while running through a breathless explanation. I didn't see you in there, so I came out here, but then I realized you must have been back there, but then I wasn't allowed back in, so I just had to stand here wondering how long you'd stay there waiting for me. He's giggling now shedding so many layers of relief and excitement that I pause to wonder if the airport cleaning staff ever feel they are mopping up excess emotion in addition to casual grime. Relieved, my dad goes off to find the toilets while I stand guard over the suitcases. As I watch him disappear, I decide to begin our father-daughter escapade by creating a running list of qualities I adore about him, flipping to the back of my notebook and creating the heading... Things about Dad, before printing, how often he giggles. A few minutes later, I look up to see him scurrying back to where I am waiting with the bags. He is not a plodder, my father. He has two speeds, resting and scurrying. And despite the speed at which his legs are swishing and padding along the shiny airport floor, I have time to add, and the way he giggles before flipping my notebook shut. This is my first time in Ireland. I've always intended to come, but other, sunnier, more exotic places always seemed to win out. Now that I'm here, though, I can't believe how long it's taken me to arrive. I feel giddy, springy, 
Can't wait to get out and explore the city, the pubs, the famously green countryside, to fill my ears with jocular idioms, to lap up everything there is to lap. Our taxi driver is kind and talkative, effervescent with stories of weather, both typical and atypical, and the type of clothing he generally wears, both winter and summer. I am delighted by his accent to a cliched degree. He offers to take us through the park on our way to our destination, and I am so seduced that I tell him that would be a splendid idea, having never said splendid idea in my life and sounding ridiculous as I do so. The driver exits the highway, amps up his chattiness a few more notches, and drives a long arc through an unremarkable expanse of grass and trees while cheerfully doubling his fare. But who cares? We're in Ireland, on our way to an Airbnb, as about 75% of his customers are doing these days, the driver tells us. My dad booked the place a few months ago, and while I wasn't sure about it from the photos, I'm afraid there might be a black-and-white cow skin on the living room floor. I found that few of these places actually resemble their photos, so we might be pleasantly surprised. Ooh, that's a lovely area, the driver assures us with a nice round ooh and lovely, adding that he believes we'll be very happy there indeed. He winds through a series of narrow cobblestone streets into a quaint historic neighborhood and leaves us at the front gates of the old Jameson distillery, which is odd until we learn that the polished limestone building was recently remodeled to house a whiskey museum and a cluster of condos holding the echoes of three centuries of people saying, Cheers! Indeed, I believe we'll be very happy here. Okay, I'll skip um, a bit, and just to give you a taste of the what happens, <laughs> uh, I will skip to near the end of the book, um, where I have one of these conversations that I mentioned with one of the librarians who um, just was able to illuminate uh, an interesting piece of history. Okay, so I'm, my dad and I are doing research, and I just type decide to take one of these breaks that I'm always taking. Um, and, and then I, I come back and decide to just talk to one of the librarians, as I also was doing quite regularly. So um, he says, oh, yes, so he's happy to, uh, he's friendly and helpful and happy to chew the fat about all manner of nonsense, Canadian weather, American primaries, while helping people order manuscripts from the shelves below ground. When was it? The older of the two men asks me, leaning on the counter as if it were a bar and there were a bottle between us rather than the Church of Ireland registers for the Diocese of Meath. When was it that everything that used to be a sin became a virtue? I tell him I'm not sure. Ambition, avarice, they're all celebrated now, aren't they? They're what you need to be a politician to get ahead, it seems. I'll never understand why we celebrate in our leaders qualities we wouldn't put up with in our own children. That's some kind of collective madness, so it is. I agree that it is. And the United States of America has to be the maddest place on earth at present, isn't it? This election, it's nothing but a vulgar reality television show. That one's got a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp. A bulldog chewing a wasp. I jot that phrase onto a slip of paper and fold it into my back pocket. The man looks pleased. 
But Canada, he says, raising his index finger. Now there's a place with a bit of sanity about it at last. You're lucky being Canadian. Though, for the record, the moment you walked in here this morning, I knew I was looking at an Irish girl. Which is a very funny thing, because I am brown-eyed with brown curly hair that has such a mind of its own it should probably have its own driver's license, far from the typical blue-eyed, red-haired Irish lass. Hardly, I said, holding up a handful of dark curls, to which our man straightens up. Ah, but there you have it. Your family hails from the West Country, isn't it? I remind him that he has been helping me pull up documents from Western parishes all afternoon. Right you are now, no mistake, he says, leaning closer and lowering his voice. But if you were to indulge me a moment, I'd be delighted to bring to your attention a chapter of Irish history that will go lengths to explain how the locks you hold in your hand have their origins in a shipwreck of the Spanish Armada. I live for sentences like that. If I could pull a bottle out of my purse and pour us two glasses, I would. So I mime the decanting of an imaginary bottle and... Being a good sport, our man, Callum, for if we are to be drinking together, it seems right that we call each other by name, reaches for one of the invisible glasses, raises it, and says, Cheers! Before running a hand over his comb-over and leaning both arms on the library counter. Now, I don't know your level of knowledge concerning the Spanish Armada, Callum starts, raising a hand in a gesture of apology. Pardon. I think it would be level one, I say, to which he nods and lowers his hand. So you might well be aware of the large fleet of ships dispatched from Spain in 1588 with the purpose of invading England. And what you'll know, that you're following a crushing defeat in the English Channel, what remained of the 130-strong fleet was forced up to the North Sea in retreat. I'm nodding, though I suspect I'm actually level zero. Now, many of the ships survived the battle, sustained serious damage from the gunships. Structural damage, of course, but also damage to the navigational equipment. And they were not at all fit for the conditions of the North Atlantic. As fate would have it, after sailing their way past the Orkneys and the Hebrides, the ships met with ferocious storms that blew the fleet dramatically off course. And right, Callum drives one hand hard onto the counter, right into the rocky shores of Western Ireland. He tisks and shakes his head. About two dozen ships were wrecked, they figure, and more than a thousand men drowned. Oh, if you'll excuse me a moment. A woman has approached the desk with a written request for materials. Callum greets her by name, files her request, exchanges a few well wishes and returns to, the, to my end of the counter waits a moment until the woman has reached the far end of the room, then whispers, That woman's grandfather was a great hero of Ireland, Thomas McDonough, a poet, one of the leaders of the Irish Easter Rising. He lowers his voice further. Executed by firing squad at the Kilmainham Jail. Nasty business. You'll see his face on plaques and posters all over Dublin at the moment. I glance over at the woman in her late 60s or 70s, perhaps, and watch as she straightens the sleeves of her cardigan and settles in at the table next to my dad. I consider going over and slipping him a note. The granddaughter of one of the executed leaders of Easter Rising is sitting next to you. But I decide not to distract him, or to alert him to the fact that I'm brushing up on the Spanish Armada. 
Now, sorry, where did I leave you? Callum mutters, probing his forehead with his fingertips as if he might physically find the spot. Uh, you left me on the rocky western coast of Ireland. Callum leaps to life. He actually leaps, though not far. So it was, treacherous. The rocks chewed those ships to bits. Hundreds of men lost at sea. But, he pauses, raising a finger, but for a two-mile stretch of sand at the strand of Strida, County Sligo, where three of the ships were blown ashore and where... He pauses again, fingers still raised. Thanks only to that soft and forgiven sand, a number of the crew from those ships did manage to survive. I can see where this story is going. And what you'll find, he's leaning even closer now, his smile is like a string of lights across his face. What you'll find in that part of Ireland is quite a number of people with dark eyes and curly brown hair just like yours, he concludes, setting his fist down firmly on the counter to make his case complete. And there's no shame in it, none at all. The Spanish were good friends and allies of the Irish people, so they were, he says, winking and stepping away from the counter. His suggestion is both ludicrous and fabulous, not only for the romantic quality of it, Shipwrecked Spaniards flung up on a beach in County Sligo. And not only because it is the first plausible explanation I've ever had of the dark sheep's wool that grows up on my head, but the most absurd, almost eerie thing about this story is that I've always had a passionate, verging on obsessive affinity of all, for all things Spanish. Learning the language was like finding a lost glove and slipping it on. It was that effortless, that familiar and comforting, like a song I'd known in childhood whose lyrics were distant but easily recalled. Spanish music brings me to my knees, always has, and nowhere do I feel less foreign than in the company of Spanish-speaking people. My partner and I ended up raising our son in Mexico, and leaving that country to return to Canada felt like an amputation. I'm losing sight of logic, grasping at straws, masts of the sunken Spanish armada, but there is so much about this story that makes visceral, intuitive sense to me. It may be right up there with other crazy explanations that my father's had for these genealogical connections, but maybe they're not so half-crazed half, half either. In fact, all of this memory is in keeping with the concept of genetic memory, that our genes carry not only physical traits, but psychological ones as well. Memories, knowledge, intuitive responses, even traumas. After spending the week dissing all things genealogical, suddenly I find myself wondering if there might not be something to this stuff after all. So that's a little taste from the beginning and the end of the book. Um, what else can I say about it? Well, there's a lot of humour in it. And, oh, I'm, I'm my apologies to any Irish listeners. I know I butchered the accent, but <laughs> I wanted to at least give it some of the colour. Uh, so I tried anyway. Um, but, yes, there's a lot of humour in the story. And um, I think ultimately it really is just about the time that we have with our loved ones and just how precious and beautiful that can be. So I hope you enjoy it and I wish you well. Stay well and safe and nourished by books. 
Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.